The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 19, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Okay, we're in Leviticus 24, 10 through 23. And this is entitled, Recompense for an Offense. Verse 10, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son... And a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomit, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemies the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemies the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Today we come to a story which seems to abruptly appear out of nowhere and for no logical reason. 
the Lord has identified a host of things, the last three of which were the feasts of the Lord, and then the care of the lamps, and then the bread in the tabernacle. Now suddenly it introduces this passage. This is not unlike a similar account in Numbers 15. There, a person who violates the Sabbath will be introduced and eventually executed. That appears right in the middle of laws and instructions as well. The placement of these is not arbitrary, but rather intentional. In this case, feasts being followed by the care for the lamps and the bread are detailed in order to show attentiveness to the Lord day in and day out, week in and week out, and even throughout the calendar year. But the name of the Lord is what identifies who he is. To defile the name of the Lord is to bring dishonor to him. To allow this to be done and not punished on the first recorded offense would make any future punishment arbitrary and vindictive. Therefore, either his name will now be sanctified among the people or it would always be open to defilement upon their lips and in their lives. After this will come more calendar events, but this account must precede it in order for those events to be considered in their proper light. The Lord is God, and he is to be regarded as holy, daily, weekly, yearly, and throughout the years to come. <coughs> Always and forever, the name of the Lord is to be held in the highest sanctity. Our text verse today comes from Acts chapter 16. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Was the Lord's name only to be kept in honor and esteem by Israel among those who were Israelites? Or was the honor of the Lord's name to be sacred among all who dwelt among Israel as well, even if strangers? The answer is today's lesson. In Acts, Paul saw something in his young protege, Timothy. He saw a person who was in the same category as the person in our sermon verses today. And yet, he was to now be a representative to his own people, Israel. How could they be expected to respond to an uncircumcised half-breed when they were the possessors of the law and the defenders of the name? And so, as an expediency, Paul circumcised Timothy. In this, it would make their ministry for Jesus, the name above every name, more likely to succeed among the Jews. Such ironic twists flow like rivers of gold through the pages of Scripture, and they together form a marvelous tapestry of God's unfolding redemption of the people of the world. Jew, Gentile, we are all accountable to the Lord for who we are, for what we do, and for how we conduct our lives in His presence. This is a truth which is found in His superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, out of Egypt, but not of Israel. It's verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, now the son of an Israelite woman, 
Verses 10 and 11 of this account are the only time in the Bible that the feminine adjective Yisraelite or Israelite is used in the Bible. The patronymic adjective Yisraeli or Israeli is also used here and one more time in 1 Samuel. Thus, there is a stress on this connection which is being highlighted. The term is being used in opposition to Egyptian. It has been noted that the name of the mother is given, but that of the father is not. And some people say that that demonstrates that the son left Egypt with the mother, but that the father remained in Egypt. There is absolutely nothing to substantiate this. The name of the mother is given, as always, because it is relevant to the story. The name of the father is not. Further, it is that she is the Israelite which is being stressed. Whether the father is back in Egypt or with the camp now, whether he is alive or dead, young or old, or whatever else, those things are irrelevant and are left unstated. Jewish tradition says that the father was the Egyptian slain by Moses way back in Exodus 2 verse 11. Again, even if that was true, it is irrelevant to the story. The Bible is providing specifics to focus on, and so they are where our thoughts are to be focused. Verse 10 continues, whose father was an Egyptian, Vehu ben Ish Mitzri, and who son of man Egypt. The contrast here is made. There is Israel, and there is Egypt. He was of mixed race, but it is through the father that one's line is reckoned in the Bible. He was not a circumcised Hebrew, just as Timothy was not circumcised, despite having a Jewish mother. His father was a Greek. Only when he traveled with Paul among the Jews as an adult was he then circumcised. Having said this, what can be inferred is that this person chose to remain identified with Egypt even after the Exodus. How can we know this? Because in Exodus chapter 12, it says the following, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Because of this, it is without a doubt that the son did not get circumcised and he did not observe the Passover. He was simply one of the mixed multitude who joined Israel as they departed. Otherwise, he would have been here reckoned as one native of the land. This is further seen with the next words. Verse 10 continues, went out among the children of Israel. They took Bene Yisrael among children of Israel. There are two different ideas of what is being said here. One is that it means that he went out of Egypt with the children of Israel. The other is that he went into the midst of the children of Israel, meaning as a non-native, he came into an area of the camp where he was not allowed. Those who were circumcised and accepted as part of the congregation dwelt separately from the others. The latter seems the more likely. It's obvious that he went out of Egypt with Israel, but the opposition of the use of the term Israeli and Egyptian seems to show that they are now identified as two different groups of people. Verse 10 continues, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. The word for fought is natsah. It is generally used to indicate contention or strife. When Korah rebels against Moses in Numbers chapter 26, this is the word which will be used. We could think of it as a loud shouting match with fingers pointed and faces flushed. 
Again, there are several Jewish traditions about why they came to this point. It is not worth repeating them because the Lord has not told us them in his word. To insert something extra to this account would only muddy what we have already been given. There are times when extra biblical additions can be helpful, and there are times when they are not. There is nothing from those accounts which helps us to understand the overall intent of this passage here. It is simply the case that the two fought. One is the son of a Yisraelite, and the other one is a Yisraeli. There is a contrast between the two, just as there is a contrast between Timothy and those he would have to eventually dispute with. This account perfectly explains why Paul circumcised Timothy, even though he argues against such a thing vehemently in the book of Galatians for Gentile believers. The Jews could no more accuse Timothy of being a foreigner after being circumcised than they could say that the words of Exodus chapter 12 were untrue. If asked if he kept the Passover, he could truthfully say yes, even if he had never sat down to one single Passover meal in his entire life because he had observed the true Passover, which is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. The word translated here as blasphemed is nakav. It means to bore or to pierce. It is used elsewhere to designate or express by name. In other words, you point at somebody and you bore at them or you pierce at them. And it can be either honorably or by reproach. The word cursed is kalal. It signifies to make light, trifling, to curse, and so on. The words of the Lord in this verse are inserted by the translators. They are not in the Hebrew. All it says is Hashem, the name. It does not say Hashem Yehovah or the name of the Lord. The only time that the term Hashem is seen when speaking of the Lord is in Deuteronomy 25, verse 58, where it is used in conjunction with the divine name Yehovah. In verse 16, it will say Shem Yehovah or name Yehovah, not Hashem Yehovah or the name Yehovah. And finally, the reason for his stoning, as is given in verses 14 and 23, is not blasphemy, but because he had cursed. And so there's a debate as to whether he blasphemed the name of the Lord or if he actually exalted the name of an Egyptian god. Even if the latter, which is actually probably correct, he is fighting with the man of Israel for whatever reason, and he is sworn by the name of an Egyptian god, and then he is cursed. It would be a high crime to come into the camp and to challenge the Lord by invoking an Egyptian God who had done nothing but suffer disgrace at the hand of the Lord when judgment fell upon Egypt. Verse 11 continues, and so they brought him to Moses. The plural here, they, indicates that the people understood that a major infraction had taken place. There may have been a discussion among the elders, or the people as a whole may have simply been so upset at what happened that they manhandled him off to Moses. Moses' name means he who draws out. He will be the one to draw out from the Lord that which must be done through judgment. Verse 11 continues, his mother's name was Shelomit. Names are always given for a reason when given. Three more names are given now, asking us to translate them into meaning. We can know this because the corresponding account for the Sabbath breaker, which I mentioned in Numbers 15, doesn't give anyone's name except Moses and Aaron. Here, along with Moses, these are specified. The name of the offender is not given. The name of the man that he strived with isn't given. Only the name of the mother, Shelomit, is. 
The name finds its source in the word shalom or peace. But one cannot get to shalom or a state of peace without correcting for any offenses. And an offense has been made. Shalem, a corresponding masculine noun, indicates a peace offering or a sacrifice for alliance or friendship. The name Shalomit looks to be the result of a feminine plural form of this name. In this case, it would indicate intensity rather than a plural number. The only such feminine derivative found in the entire Bible is seen in Psalm 91 with these words. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward, the Shalomit of the wicked. In this, then, shalomit indicates a requital, recompense, or retribution. A close synonym would be to avenge. At times in the Bible, the Lord is said to avenge while giving recompense. The name of the Lord has been challenged, and therefore the name of the Lord will be avenged. At the same time, he will recompense the offender. Only in this can there be shalom, or peace, once again. Verse 11 continues, the daughter of Debri. Another name is given, and thus it is expected to be explained. The name Divri is used just this once in the Bible. It is derived from the verb Davar, which means to speak. The I at the end is either possessive, and so it would mean my word, or it is a reference to Jehovah, and so it would mean word of the Lord. Either way, in picture, the result is the same. The word of the Lord will lead to the recompense for the offender. Verse 11 continues, of the tribe of Dan. The tribe of the individual is named Dan. Dan means judge. The given names anticipate the sentence which will follow. The Lord will judge. The man's life will be forfeit for his misdeed according to the word of the Lord, and the Lord will recompense the man for his wickedness. However, Israel will be the agent of this action. Should they fail to follow through in making his life an offering of appeasement, there can be no peace. All of this is tied up in what is presented here. Verse 12, then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. This verse literally says, and they rested him in custody to explain to them by mouth, Jehovah. The mouth is what speaks and thus the spoken word will be the basis for the judgment. What shall be done to the offender of the name? What will Moses tell us to do? Is the judgment for us and for an outsider the same? Will he be allowed to live or will we bid him adieu? Surely the name is to be held as sacred and in sanctity will the Lord hold his name. If not, then any who wishes on his name, they will tread. Ignominy will be the result. Ignominy and not fame. We shall wait upon his word to reveal what to do and what he decides will surely be just and correct. For the Lord is God, holy and true. In him, no unrighteousness will we ever detect. Our second thought today is the stone of Israel. It's verses 13 through 23. Verse 13, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, it goes unstated how the Lord spoke to Moses. So we can only assume that it was in the regular manner where he went into the most holy place and there he spoke directly to the Lord. And the Lord spoke directly to him in return. The word of the Lord from the seat of the Lord is now given. Verse 14, take outside the camp him who is cursed. The same word kalal as was used in verse 11 is given as the basis for the judgment. The one who made a trifling and thus brought the name of the Lord into contempt is to be taken outside of the camp. 
The sanctity of the camp meant that no such punishment as will be rendered could take place within it. Just as a leper or any other unclean person was sent outside the camp, so was this man to be taken out of it. He had no part in Israel, and he was to be removed from their sight. Things do not look good for this guy. Verse 14 continues, Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. The laying of the hands on the head is specified. In the case of the Sabbath breaker in Numbers 15, there is no such instruction given. But here there is. Those who heard were to place their hands on the man's head. This seems to be another indication that the person invoked the name of another god. They are witnesses of this and are avowing the name of the Lord as the rightful judge and denying the name of the false god at the same time. The Lord has rendered the judgment through his spoken word, and now recompense upon the individual must be made. Should this not occur, there could be no shalom, no peace. Another God has been placed as a challenge to the name of the Lord, and this could not stand. Verse 14 continues, And let all the congregation stone him. The word let does not do these words justice. It says, And stone them him all the congregation. It doesn't say that they could opt out if they wanted to. It simply says that all of the people were to stone him. If this was literally carried out by all the people, the pile over him would have been massive by the time they were done with the job. It would stand there as a testimony to the severity of his crime. Verse 15, Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. The Lord has given the punishment for the offender, but now he gives a general law to ensure that there is no question in the people's minds concerning future violations of this type. There is again a dispute as to what's actually being referred to here. Some see this as not speaking about the true God at all, and this is probably correct. If someone were to curse the name of his God, he would bear the sin of an idolater. Death is not mandated for such a thing, but sin is borne by those who are, by default, not followers of the Lord. No death penalty is mandated for such a person because he is accountable to the Lord on a completely different level than those who are either followers of the Lord or who would blasphemy the name of the Lord, even if not his follower. Verse 16, and whoever blasphemies the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. On the other hand, any person, anyone who blasphemies the name of the Lord, whether a follower or not, was to be put to death. The words are emphatic. Stoning, he shall be stoned. There is one God, and his name was not to be violated ever. The words here also seem to confirm what was proposed earlier concerning the Egyptian. First, it says the stranger as well as the native. The stranger could be any person following any religion. If he were to curse the name of his God, who would care? Only the Lord would, who is not considered his God. And so the Lord would deal with him in due time. But if a stranger among the people blasphemed his name, then it would be an offense worthy of immediate consequences, lest his name be defiled among the people and degraded in their eyes. Secondly, it says, Venokev Shem Yehovah, and he who blasphemies name Yehovah. Unlike verse 11, there is no article, no the in front of name. And this follows through to the next words. Verse 16 continues, when he blasphemies the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Benakevo Shem Yumat, when he blasphemies name, put to death. Again, the words of the Lord are inserted. 
And unlike verse 11, there is no article in front of name. It simply (laughs) says Shem. Thus, there is a stress on the very idea of his name. It is completely other, it is completely distinct, and it is without match or rival. The contrast between verse 11 and here clues us into what was being referred to there. Verse 17, whoever kills a man shall surely be put to death. It seems curious at first that this and the following commands are suddenly placed here, especially as some are repeats of previous commands. But what is being done is including anyone who would commit such crimes within the company of the Lord. The commands previously given pertained solely to Israel. However, it is now understood that anyone within the jurisdiction of Israel was bound to these same laws as well. The words here say, and he who strikes all the soul man. The implication is murder. There are times when killing was prescribed by the Lord, such as in war or in capital punishment, like the sentence which was just pronounced. That is not what this is speaking of. Rather, it is the intentional, unjustifiable murder of another. Nobody had the right to kill another without their first being a legal tribunal, even for a blasphemer. Verse 18, whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animal. Some laws concerning animals were given in Exodus 21. Those dealt with different matters than this. This is a provision of lex talionis, or retaliation in kind, meaning like for like, whereby a punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree. If someone purposefully killed another animal, he was to replace it in kind. The obvious reason for this inclusion is to show that an animal is not on the same category as a man. There can be no justification for anyone to find guilt beyond replacement for the killing of an animal. It is a precept which has become fashionably ignored in modern society where animals are placed on an unhealthy level of supposed dignity, at times bordering on that of humans. The same punishment for blaspheming the name of the Lord was given to one who murders another, and rightfully so, as man is made in the image of God. But such was not and is not to be the case with an animal. Verse 19, if a man causes defigurement of his neighbor as he is done, so shall it be done to him. The word mum or defect is used here. Should someone do something to another to cause a defect in him, then the law of lex talionis was to be enacted. Though seemingly harsh, this law is actually as much a curb on retribution as it is a means of punishment. No greater punishment was to be meted out than that which had been inflicted. Thus, the punishee was not to be unduly or overly punished. Verse 20, fracture for fracture. If Vic McGreg broke Sam's leg, then Sam could do the same in turn, but he could do no more. If he were to instead crack him on the head, Vic McGreg's punishment would have been overly sore. And so, to break Vic's leg is what the law says should be. And when this was over, Vic and Sam could make up, and they could together hobble home clumsily. Verse 20 continues, eye for eye. If Jim poked out Tom's eye out of spite, we know that wouldn't be right. And so, the law says that Tom could do the same to Jim in turn. And so, from this loss of his own sight, Jim would his lesson learn. Verse 20 continues, tooth for tooth. If Jay punched Alex and knocked out his tooth, Alex could not in turn break Jay's arm. Instead, he got to knock out Jay's tooth too. 
But maybe Alex suffered the greater harm because Jay's whistle became pronounced and incessantly announced what Alex, in retaliation to Jay, did do. Verse 20 continues, As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Any disfigurement of any type was to be paid in kind, but the punishment was to go no further. The Lord's decision in this was intended as a curb against any initial offense, and it was intended as a curb against excessive retaliation, either by the individual or by an unjust court. Verse 21, and whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Here we have a shortened repeat of verses 17 and 18. They are reversed as well. The Hebrew simply says, he who strikes a beast and he who strikes a man. If one were to read this verse only, they might come to the conclusion that merely striking another man, whether death occurred or not, was worthy of death. Therefore, the words must be considered in connection with the passage and not alone. The intent is to strike and to kill. But the reason for the repetition is to again stress the difference between animals and humans. It cannot be considered murder to kill an animal, and it must be considered murder to kill a man. Further, the word for man here is Adam. It is not Ish. It is not speaking of a man as in an adult male, but rather as a member of the human race, one of mankind. And this will probably upset some of you here, but I'm going to say it anyway because I don't care. Although the perverse would say there is a difference between a human in the womb and a human born from the womb, the Bible does not make this distinction. Biblically, the life of a human is one which begins at conception. John the Baptist was six months old when Christ, who was less than a month old, appeared in his presence. And he leapt for joy, the Bible says, at the presence of his Messiah. The Bible says that if a man strikes a woman who has a child in her womb and the child dies, it is life for life. The Bible speaks of the person in the womb as a person. The logical, moral, and correct evaluation of this then is that to kill a human in the womb is to murder, and it is worthy of death. What our society and the world at large finds acceptable will be judged by the all-righteous, always moral, and perfectly just God. And I'll add on to this because we are not a 501c3 organization. I'm going to say this. We have an election coming up on Tuesday for those who are in House seat 72. And we have a choice. We can vote for a Republican or we can vote for a Democrat or we can vote for neither. I don't care if you vote for the Republican or neither. But I will tell you something. The policy, the written policy statement of the Democrat National Convention says murder on demand, abortion. That is what they support. And every single person who has <laughs> entered into the political realm has signed that statement. There's only one of two things if they say that's not true. Either they're lying or they're incompetent because they signed something saying that they would do something and they don't really believe it. And so if you vote for a Democrat, any Democrat, from the tax collector all the way up to the president of the United States in the United States of America, you are implicitly condoning the murder of innocent children, unborn children made in the image of God. You have a moral choice to make in this life, and God will hold you accountable for every single decision that you make, especially the issue of murder. 
and especially the murder of the unborn because they have no way of defending themselves at all. And if that upsets anybody here, I don't care. I will continue to proclaim the word of God and the message of Jesus Christ until the day I die. Verse 22, you shall have the same law for the stranger and from one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Again, the words here hearken back to verse 16, and that in turn takes us back to the account of the son of the Egyptian and the Israelite woman. There were two groups of people at the camp that were to be held to the same standard. Upon arrival in Canaan, the same would be true with any foreigner to the people of Israel. If they received the benefits of residing in the jurisdiction of the people of Israel, they were to be bound to these same laws as the people of Israel. And just think of it. Did they allow Sharia in Israel? No, there was one law for all the people. We are a nation which is frittering away our legal rights by allowing people to have their own jurisdictional laws within certain states, saying we're going to let this group of people arbitrate their own laws. That is absolutely insane. We are a united country and we have one law. It should be one law for all people. But once again, we're dealing with issues that are outside of the Bible right now, so we'll go on. What they did with and towards their own gods was not to be of concern to the Israelites as long as it was not otherwise forbidden by the Lord. But what they did to and towards both the Lord and the Lord's people was. This was because verse 22 continues, For I am the Lord your God. Ki ani Yehovah Elohechem. For I am Yehovah your God. They are the Lord's people. He is their God. And so anything which affected either them in this capacity or him as being in this position was to be considered equal for all people who dwelt within his boundaries. The emphasis stands because the offender of verse 11 was not a member of the covenant people, but he was within the jurisdiction of the Lord nonetheless. Because of this, Moses now has words for the people to hear. Verse 23, then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Moses has drawn out from the Lord that which was needed to be shown in order to resolve the dilemma of the congregation. And with that, he speaks forth the word. Here it doesn't say, then Moses spoke to all the people. Instead, it says that he spoke to B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Although it is a standard form of address, it is they who have been given the full authority from this point forward to deal with all cases of blasphemy. Such was the desire of the people towards Jesus as is recorded in John chapter 8. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. The same type of attempt against the Lord was made again in John chapter 10. Thus we have another one of the ironies of the Bible before us. The Lord who gave the commandment of stoning for blasphemy against his name was treated as a blasphemer. And the people who bore the authority of his name attempted to stone him. Such was not to be the case, however. Christ would die in fulfillment of scripture, but it would not be by stoning at the hands of Israel. It would be by crucifixion on a tree. Verse 23 continues, And they took him outside the camp, him who had cursed, and stoned him with stones. 
The Hebrew reads, and stoned him stone. It is singular. In Numbers 15, the corresponding account of the Sabbath breaker says ba'abanim, or with stones. But here it simply says aben, or stone. The man has blasphemed the name of the Lord. And though the congregation is instructed to destroy this man, it is the Lord who is the judge and who made the decision. And therefore, it is by the stone of Israel, the Lord Jehovah, that the man was destroyed. That is a term used only once in the Bible in Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob blessed his sons and he did his blessing upon his son Joseph and he said the stone of Israel. And that is what's being pictured right here. He, the judge, Dan, spoke the word devri and recompense or shalomit was made upon the man for his transgression. Surely the Bible is true when it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And surely we can see why these names of the people were specifically included in the account of this passage. Verse 23 finishes with these words. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. The offering of the violator's life, if it can be so termed, has been made. The name of the Lord has been sanctified and the obedience of the people has been proven. Though this is a remarkable example of such obedience, an abundance of examples of failure lie ahead. It is a chronic problem with Israel, and it is a chronic problem with us as well. Remember during the Prophecy Update what some of these churches are doing today? The things that they're doing, the blasphemy of the name of the Lord, no more male pronouns in our common book of prayer. We're going to have only gender-free prayer of the name (laughs) of the Lord and all of these things. This is exactly what's being pictured right here. It is making God in man's image. It is not man made in God's image. We have to be very careful how we relate to the Lord because he is God and he is sovereign and he is the creator. And when we turn things around and make God in our image, we deserve exactly what this person is getting right here. It is so easy to find fault in others and it is an easy thing indeed to execute judgment when a reward for doing so can be expected. But it is a much harder thing to find fault in our own actions and it is a terribly hard thing to ferret out those who are offenders when there's no perceived benefit or maybe even loss for doing so. How many churches turned a blind eye to sin because they would rather have the donations coming in? How many of us would turn a blind eye to sin because it involves a loved one? And thus the consequences for taking a stand against what they are doing will cause a disruption in our own lives. Are we willing to put the word of God and his commands for our lives first And even more, are we willing to defend the honor and the sanctity of the Lord's name above all else? He cherishes his name and he safeguards it as the most precious thing because it is. His name reveals who he is and his name defines everything about him. Is our relationship with him in understanding of this? Is our reverence of him in accord with this? Let us endeavor to live with the thought in our mind that the Lord is indeed holy, but he is indeed good, but he is also indeed righteous and just. In keeping this understanding of who he is in our minds, we will then be in a much better position to honor him, to bring him glory, and to be attentive to our very, very lowly state in his magnificent presence. And so I'd like to make an appeal to all of you today, as I do each week, because I don't know who's online right now, and I don't know who's going to watch the video later. But there is somebody out there that may have never heard of the simple saving message of Jesus Christ. It is so simple. We do these things. All of us have done this in our heart, certainly a million times. 
We've all blasphemed the name of the Lord in one way or another with our life and our actions, and we deserve what that man got. But God was willing to do something marvelous, something wonderful, something glorious by sending his own son, his precious and only son into the world to die for our sins. What this means is that it says in the Bible, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ is eternal. He is the God-man. He stepped out of the infinite realm, something he did not need to do in order to fix what we had so horribly fouled up. Adam sinned against him, and that sin is transferred from father to child, father to child, all the way down through human history. All people inherit the sin of their father. All people, males and females alike, all have a parent, every single one of us. But God in Genesis chapter 17 told Abraham to circumcise the child and every person in this household. And he said, after this, on the eighth day, every person is to be circumcised. And why did he do that? <coughs> it was to give us a picture of what he was going to do in his own son when he would cut the sin nature because the sin is traveling by the male to all people below him. And so he's going to cut the sin nature. And then he gave the law to Israel and he said, here's what I expect. And the man who does these things shall live by them. And the rest of the Bible through the Old Testament shows that nobody did those things because every one of them died. They're all in their grave. None of them did the things of the law, and they all died. But Jesus came, and he was born under the law that he gave to the people of Israel. And he was born without a human father. The sin nature is cut. The picture is fulfilled of circumcision. And he lived out that life under that law, which we can't pass for 10 seconds of our life perfectly for his entire life. And then he gave his life as an exchange for your sins and my sins and for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave, it's a gift, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the book of Romans tells us what we need to do. If you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a tough thing to do is to say that I need a savior. I have sin in my life, but I'm willing to accept that God sent somebody to take the penalty for me. And he didn't just send somebody. He sent Jesus, his own son. If you have never asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to take away your guilt, which you bear, you deserve what this person got, a mound of stones. Listen, if there were two million people in that camp and they all threw a stone, that pile would be giant and it would stand there as a testimony of what he had done and every one of us should be lying under a pile just like that. But for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, please ask Christ to forgive you of your sins. It says, if you do that, he will seal you with his Holy Spirit. The moment you believe, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, he will seal you. And he uses the term arvon, guarantee, the Spirit is a guarantee that He will fulfill His promises to you. You are forgiven and you are saved. Job done. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Deuteronomy 32. It's verses 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Next week is Leviticus 25, 1 through 7, a provision marvelous and grand. It's entitled, The Sabbath of the Land. That'll be our 45th Leviticus sermon. Man, we're getting done. We're going to be done with Leviticus pretty soon. I'm going to miss it. Jesus Christ is all over this book. 
that is the most marvelous book in the Bible, and it's a book that most people never read, and if they read it, they read it really quickly to get through it. What Jim was talking to me about that at mission work yesterday. We're going to miss this book, aren't we? It, it's just unbelievable. I've never been more enjoyed by this book. <laughs> Absolutely astonishing, the pictures of Christ. Unbelievable. I'll tell you something. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you like that pile of rocks, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem and we're done. It's entitled Recompense for an Offense. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel according to the account's description. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So the word does tell. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses because of his irreverent outburst. His mother's name was Shelemit, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan was her family tree. Then they put him in custody, probably hold up alone, that the mind of the Lord to them might be shown. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him for his unholy outburst. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. So to you I am relaying. And whoever blasphemies the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Be sure to understand. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger, as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemies the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death, according to this word. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death, so you shall extinguish his life, ending his breath. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal, ensure that this is understood. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him, most certainly, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him, so shall it be. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death, so to you I submit. You shall have the same law for the stranger and one for from your own country as well. For I am the Lord your God. You shall do these things as to you I tell. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded for the man's unholy outburst. Thank you, O God, for this hope you have given us. As sons of Adam, we are dead in sin. But through your son, we are made alive. Yes, through Jesus, a new and eternal life has been granted to live in. And so may we reverence your name always, O Lord, and cling fast to the truths of your superior word. Praise you. Praise you, O God. Yes, hear our praise, that which our hearts will sing to you even for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. I read passages like this and they scare me to death at what I deserve. The life I've lived, the life that many in this congregation know, they know my heart and how wicked I am, but you are willing to forgive because of Jesus. Day in and day out, we slip and we fall and we pick ourselves back up again and we keep our eyes fixed on the cross. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because it is he, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has delivered us from what we do in this body. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray for all of those people that we mentioned earlier in the uh, service that have 
pains and trials and troubles and difficulties. Wow, what a list we've had this week, Lord. Please be with these people. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, above all, we would ask that you would convict their hearts and not let them have a moment of rest until they yield themselves to him. We pray this, that they will be saved, that you will be glorified, and that there will be many, many happy souls in the kingdom when we stand in your glorious presence for all eternity. We thank you that we can petition you. We thank you that you've given us this right through our mediator, Jesus. And so it's in his beautiful and perfect and precious name that we pray. Amen.